Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you again tonight. This week, we're getting close to the end of our series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. In the previous four weeks, we've done our best to explore and empathize with the particular crisis that this letter is attempting to address among the Galatian churches. Now, in Galatia, young Christians without a common background in Judaism have turned to a group of Christians who do have that background to seek wisdom about how they can live a more Christ-like and thus a more Jewish life. The instructions they've received have called them to adopt the ancient laws of Israel as guides for their behavior. And over the last few weeks, we've explored both why this was tempting to the Galatians, and, and the reason is because it offered them clarity and certainty and reassurance about their moral behavior, about whether or not they're doing things right. And we also explored why it was so alarming to Paul that they were doing this. And, and the reason is because what they were doing amounted to a kind of legalism, which undercut the freedom and the joy of the gospel. And more than that, it, it made light of Jesus's choice to suffer and to die under the law so that they could be free of it. And then last week in the series, we, we began to finally turn the corner in our study of Galatians towards what else we can do if Paul is right that embracing legalism is a mistake. What's our alternative? And the answer was that what we can do is we can embrace the beauty of the mystery of God. And we do that by surrendering to the guidance of the Holy Spirit within us. This week, we want to follow Paul into the fifth chapter of this letter, which tries to help the Galatians learn how to actually do all of these things. What does trusting the Holy Spirit look like? These are our questions for this week. Number one, what does trusting the Holy Spirit actually look like in our lives? And then two, how do we know if we're doing it right? Paul starts things off in the fifth chapter by writing this in, in verses three through six. He writes, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So let's take a moment and let's look at what Paul is saying here in the context of the first of those two questions for tonight, which was, what does trusting the Holy Spirit look like? And the answer here is that it looks like patience as you look and watch for the working of the Holy Spirit within you. When we stop struggling to become righteous by just trying really hard to be good and instead learn to trust that the God who loves us is not somewhere far away waiting to judge us, but inside of us and willing to help us. When we get to that realization, we are suddenly able to do what Paul says here, which is to eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. But of course, what gets in the way of this is impatience. We have our eyes set on the goal, but we can become restless in the process of seeking it. 
Now, my sense is that the main reason for this restlessness is an important one for us tonight, and that is that patience implies a lack of control. Over the course of this study, speaking for myself, I've resonated deeply with the struggle that the Galatians are going through. Because I know what it feels like to really want to do the right things, but to worry that if I don't have clear instructions for those right things, I'm just going to end up messing it up. I, I want to have somebody else tell me that I got it right. For a whole host of reasons that I'm still at the age of 40 beginning to figure out, I feel like I need authority figures in my life to give me reassurance, to pat me on the head and give me that gold star for a job well done. And so for me, ending up here in this job where I don't have at least an earthly boss is really, really uncomfortable. And so I see a lot of myself in the Galatians. I see folks who are, tra- who are craving ways to measure whether or not who they are is lining up with who they've set out to be. So to hear, like I'm hearing here, that what I need to do in order to end up where I want to be isn't going to be a matter of working through a checklist. To hear that is scary. But at the same time, what Paul is saying rings true to me. That there's better fruit in my life when I'm responding to love than there is when I'm trying to perform it. I, I know this is true. I know that I'm a better husband when I feel love and appreciation and respect for Meredith than I am when I'm just setting out to do the things that good husbands do. I know that I'm a better father when I sit with my kids and I try to listen to them and respond to who they are than I am when I overplan or when I lecture them. I'm not saying here that being intentional is a mistake. But the question, I think, is whether my root intention is to do 10 good things which are going to communicate love, or to feel love, and then to respond with 10 good things. So the question really is, why do I so often flip this script? And I've thought about that a lot this week, and it takes me to a pretty unsettling place. The first answer that comes to mind is that I am afraid that I don't really feel the way that I want to feel towards my family or towards my friends. I, I tell myself that I have to act loving first because if I act that way, it'll help me get through the, the emotional deserts that we all end up in from time to time. And I'll emerge on the other side of that desert feeling those good feelings again And if I do my job well enough, the people in my life will be none the wiser. And I know that that's a pretty awful thing to say out loud. And I'm asking for your grace when I say it. And I also think that at least some of you know this feeling too. But this is also where the study of Galatians is having the biggest impact on my own life and on my own thinking. Because I'm realizing that underneath this fear that I'm not really who I want to be, and that the people in my life are going to find me out, is an idol that I've been nurturing and feeding inside myself. And that idol is control. That idol is control. That's what we see, I think, with the Galatians. What we see is that the Galatians want to control God's perception of their own righteousness. Those rules they're looking for, those checkboxes, those things give them power 
If God were to appear in front of them, if God were to appear in front of me and say, hey, Kenny, I'm beginning to wonder if it's true, if you really do love me. That laundry list of good behaviors, those check boxes can become my justification for saying back to him, hey, God, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, look at all these things. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the rules I'm following. Of course I love you. But is that what love really is? Is that what trust really is? The truth is that the actual antidote, when I feel distant from Meredith, my wife, or from my children, or from a friend, the actual antidote isn't faking it until I make it. The actual antidote is letting my guard down and opening myself up to them. It's slowing down and spending time with them, rediscovering that these human beings are beautiful and unique and precious and worthy. Performing love towards them doesn't protect them. It insulates and it distances me. I'm going to say that again. Performing love for the people that you want to love doesn't protect them. What it does is it insulates and distances us. Our relationship with God, I'm convinced, is no different. For in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We have faith that God's compassion for us is real and that we can trust him enough to let our entire guard down. And when we do that, free-flowing love from him to us and then from us back to him is going to be the result. And this is the freedom that Paul keeps talking about. It's our opportunity to stop trying to control our relationships and to trust him with ourselves. To go back to our framing questions tonight, this is what trusting the Holy Spirit looks like. It looks like first realizing that the distance we create is about control, and then it's about surrendering that desire for control by taking a step in faith to experience who God really is by spending time with him. And then finally, when we do that, when we let our guard down and spend time with him, the last thing is to listen to the actual feelings that we feel. Paul's promise to the Galatians is that the result of taking these kinds of bold steps is going to be a true and deep experience of spiritual safety. And it's from that position of safety that we can eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. You will be who you want to be because God really is who you are trusting him to be. So are there any benchmarks? Are there any measurements? Maybe we don't need those check boxes, but is there anywhere that we can go for reassurance in this process when we're experiencing moments of weakness and doubt? And the great news here is that Paul says the answer is yes, there is. But it requires us to respond to our insecurity with humility and curiosity instead of those old habits of distance and control. 
He writes in chapter 16 and 25 of, I'm sorry, in verses 16 and 25 of, (laughs) I keep messing that up. In verses 16 through 25 of the fifth chapter, he writes this. He writes, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now that the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now the reassurance then that we can find as we seek to live in this sometimes frightening and vulnerable place of surrender and openness and trust with God, the reassurance we can find is in the fruit of our lives and of our character. To put that more plainly, do our actions end up lining up with our intentions? I think it can be helpful to think again about the source of all of this trouble, right? Galatian men are circumcising themselves, and they're doing that in order to look more like God's chosen people. But the thing about circumcision is that it's a one-and-done kind of thing. The evidence of the actual state of your heart isn't going to be the stuff that you do when you set out to be good. It's going to be in the stuff you do even when you're feeling burned out, even when you're just letting off steam. Now that list of the bad stuff here, those acts of the flesh, it can be a bit culturally jarring, but it's worth looking at more closely. Sexual immorality, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Now, I want to contend that most of those things aren't things that people ever set out to do. The truth is that they're the snares that you end up in when you're in that space we were talking about before, where you're boxing people out, retreating into yourself and feeling powerless and seeking any means of control of your life. I have yet to see someone get entangled in an extramarital affair who wasn't already distancing themselves emotionally from their spouse. You don't typically see otherwise emotionally open and spiritually healthy people just suddenly erupt in fits of rage. Any mental health professional will tell you that a major factor in alcohol abuse and substance abuse is a desire to avoid or to escape from perceived problems. And all that's a way of saying that those acts of the flesh are really, 
reactions of the flesh. They are outward and observable responses to internal feelings of fear and insecurity and loneliness. Which means then that it would be absolutely missing of the point to, to see this, this list of bad things as a laundry list of things that good people won't do. These are, in fact, things that people will do if they're finding themselves more and more disconnected from those anchoring centers of grace, hope, and freedom, which Paul promises we can only find when we fully open ourselves up to God's Holy Spirit. We don't avoid these behaviors. We look for them. And when we see them, seeing them tells us that we have lost that connection to those anchors. And that means then that the other list here is important too. There are two important ways, I think, to to think about the fruit of the Spirit. And the first is in the context we're discussing right now. When we see these kinds of things in our lives or in the lives of others, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, when we see these things, we're not seeing their effort. What we're seeing is evidence that comes from that anchoring connection to grace and hope, that comes from that experience of surrendering to the Spirit and discovering that you are loved. These things, these fruit, reflect the character of God. And when we're drawing near to God in ways that accept our vulnerability, in ways that choose openness, what happens is we taste these characteristics in Him. And then we reflect them naturally out towards others. I am patient when I have faith that there's no need to be in a rush. I'm kind when I'm enabled to see other people as God sees them, holistically and clearly enough as people to have empathy and love for them. If these qualities, if these fruit are present in my life, what that means is that I can feel reassured that the hope I'm placing in God is hope placed well. Righteousness is coming out in me. It's not being performed by me, which means that righteousness is coming from a source that's not going to run dry when my own energy or my own conviction is low. So that's the, the first way of seeing the fruit of the Spirit here, to see it as evidence of what's happening inside me. Now, the second way of seeing the fruit of the Spirit here is as that righteousness, which we hope for back in Galatians 5.5. 5. The fruit of the Spirit is the rewiring and the remaking of us as children of God in the example of Christ. This is who we're meant to be. It's how we're meant to live. These qualities are what people who are living in right relationship with God, right relationship with themselves, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with creation, it's what people like that look like. Because we're meant to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When those things are at the center of us, of what we're experiencing from God, 
then and only then will we actually be people of justice, people of grace, people of mercy, people who forgive, people who lift others up, people who sacrifice, people who serve, people who worship, people who protect, people who serve God as stewards and caretakers of all that he's created. When Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything, he's saying that our restoration as human beings from places of hurt and loneliness and selfishness to places of holiness isn't going to be about any outward performance of our will. It's going to be about the actual revelation of our deepest and truest character as God's children. That physical mark of circumcision was always and only a promise of this work God would one day do within us, this moment when he would line up our actions in our worst moments with the intentions that we have in our best. Next week, we're not going to be gathering in person so that folks from the church can have a little extra time to find rest over this long Independence Day weekend. Now, as we all know, that holiday, Independence Day, commemorates something, right? It commemorates the signing of the Declaration of Independence by all 56 delegates to the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. And that document is, in every respect, a document of ideals. Although, functionally, the Declaration of Independence can best be thought of as a breakup letter with the British crown, who had governed the American colonies for more than 150 years, the actual document of the Declaration breaks up with the crown in a way that sets its sights and its intentions much, much, much higher than merely being politically independent. I don't know when the last time was that you read it, but, but here's how the Declaration of Independence actually begins, the preamble. The, the signers signed on to, and and Thomas Jefferson once wrote this, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Now that is a big opening, right? What what are they writing? What they're what they're writing is is we're not just dumping you, England, because we want to dump you, right? What the reason we're dumping you is because nature and God Himself demand that we dump you. I I never was dumped in quite that way by anybody, and I'm glad because. That's totally wild. And it's after that preamble, right after that preamble, in fact, that we get to the the more famous words of the Declaration of Independence, right? It, It begins in proper with this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This nation's freedom is necessary 
the Declaration argues, because universal freedom is the unalterable, unignorable intention of God for human beings. And this is stated in a document among whose signers 41 of those 56 claimed black human beings as their personal property. I I bring this up not to shame anybody, nor to be unpatriotic. I bring it up tonight because I think it is deeply felt evidence of the difference between the righteousness that we know and the righteousness we show. It it proves that you can know the right thing and yet be unable to do it. And where does that inability to do it come from? Well, as we've been talking about, it comes from fear. And it comes from a desire for control, particularly over how others see you. And the truth is that it's only going to be when we let go of those two things. We let go of our fear and we let go of our covetousness and our pride. That deeper goodness, the deeper goodness within us from the Spirit can be set free. This past weekend, Annapolis held its second annual celebration of Juneteenth which is our nation's newest holiday. And like the Declaration of Independence and Independence Day, I I would wager that you know now what Juneteenth commemorates. It commemorates the arrival of Union Army General Gordon Granger in Galveston, Texas, with news of the ultimate emancipation of enslaved African Americans on June 19, 1865. Now, as we all deeply know that emancipation has not ended in justice for black people in this country. But we celebrate the event because in an important way, Juneteenth is the bookend to that document that was signed 89 years earlier, that breakup letter signed 89 years earlier. Because what was said about every person's right to freedom then was finally done. It was that later action that better revealed the actual state of our nation's heart than that initial declaration did. We measure growth not by what we set out to do on our best days, friends. We measure growth by what emerges from us on our worst ones. We look at the fruit our lives are producing. And, and this is so important. To recognize and believe that fruit, we need to ask others what they see in us. So as we move towards the end of our series on Galatians, where I want us to be challenged is in our willingness to surrender to and trust the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want us as individuals to confront the fears and the insecurities which hold us back from that trust. And I want us to experiment with letting our guard down, with spending open time with our God, so that his character will comfort us 
strengthen us and teach us to let the same kind of good character we see in him overtake us and flow out from us too. And where I want us to be encouraged as we wrap up this series is in our capacity to identify and celebrate the fruit of the Spirit here in this church community. I want us to wonder, are we seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are we seeing those things in one another? And when we do see those things in one another, are we cheering for it? Are we recognizing it and celebrating it? Because this, I'm convinced, is a clear service that people in a church together can provide for each other. Because a thing I think we'd all agree on is that recognizing the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves can be really, really, really hard to do. So we need to tell each other what we're seeing Foster the fruit in our, in our environment. Celebrate it and cheer for it in one another. Point it out in one another. So tonight, as we pray in a moment and as we receive communion, I want us to do two things. First, I want us to pause and consider our own openness towards God. Can that openness grow? Can we let our guard down more? And then afterwards... As we leave this place tonight, I want us to pause and speak with one another and to tell one another where we see God's character shining through. Help somebody else tonight in our church family see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It matters. It matters. We can be a community that encourages real faith, both in ourselves as we surrender to it and also as we celebrate it in one another. That's, that's a thing that a church can be. Thank you for listening tonight, and I'll pray for us um, before we move on.